Uh, my name is Brad, one of the ministers here. Hey, listen, I uh, posted an article on Facebook last week about getting physical. Let's get physical, physical, let's get physical. And then the GIF or meme or whatever it was, I think it was a GIF, GIF, whatever, um, was pretty true of how most of us look during worship, you know, like the kind of barely zombified, you know, rocking movement. Um, but actually, uh, it's going to tie in somewhat to the topic that we have today, uh, the idea of, of not just sort of like taking worship and putting it all internal and mentally, but using your physical body uh, to really pay attention to what you're singing, whether that's being loud, uh, whether it's uh, whatever it is that you know, sort of for you is a physical bringing yourself into the experience of, of worship. Because too many of us have made this like a mental thing uh, and have forgotten the physical aspects of it. So the article talks all about how worship is really, at least in the scripture, talked about as a posture, a physical posture. And so read through that, think through that throughout your week. Uh, what would it look like for you to actually physically worship God? And I don't mean just kneeling and some of the ritualistic stuff that we normally do, although kneeling is great, um, because one of the biggest issues we have, which we'll talk a little bit today in the passages that we have, is the thought that we have certain times during the week that are sort of more spiritual. And we come into these times, and it's like spiritual, and then we go out, and there's like nothing spiritual about anything else. It's just earthly stuff. And bringing those two together, as Jesus did, and I think as the gospel does, is what's really important. And so when we come in here, it's simply just a, another expression, another time to worship God with our bodies, physically. Um, and uh, yeah, so be thinking about that. And uh, we're going to try, try uh, this next semester to bring quite a bit more of that in. We always say that. We're always trying to do things in worship because so many of us are just so used to sort of passively singing songs and rocking uh, that, uh, you know, we don't pay much attention, and not that kind of rocking, um, uh, to, uh, to what's going on. And I think that, as we've talked about a lot before, worship is just putting God in his rightful place, and if nothing else, and really shouldn't be anything else, if you simply come into this arena, uh, area, whatever, and you think about God as being God, and as being in control, and as being the one uh, that is... Uh, at the source of the reason that we're here, what we're singing, what we're doing, uh, just getting yourself into that mindset, I think, will, uh, will help quite a bit. I know it's tough, you know, because we just come in and sing songs, but we've been trying to do some different things, like the awe, uh, and if you've got other ideas as well, we'll be doing awe, alternate worship experience here in about two weeks, uh, when we meet in our home group, family group, whatever we're calling that, I don't really care, uh, at the beginning of August, right? So, anyway... Be thinking about this. This is one of those most important things, I think, for uh, the environment that we're in, the city that we're in, uh, that we get this, uh, you know, worship part, the singing part of our worship figured out and become a lot more, I think, edgy in the stuff that we do, all right? Edgy. Edgy is the word I'm looking for there, okay? Yep. All right. So we're continuing on in this really short July uh, sermon series on outreach, evangelism, good news spreading, gospeling, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, okay? Whatever buzzword doesn't seem to offend you or make you, uh, you know, full of guilt and fear and shame, okay? So next week, Leslie and I will both be gone, and uh, we have two articles that uh, we'll give you tomorrow that I want you to read through, pick one, and plan on getting in small groups and having a discussion on them. They're both very, very good articles. Um, one is about contextualizing the gospel and learning and remembering how to tell stories. The other is about how this... I preached last week the, th the topic of we've got to actually proclaim the gospel in our relationships, actually talk. This whole idea that we can just be good enough and good people into a relationship with God is not going to work. And so both of those articles will be there on the Facebook page. Read through them and then come prepared for that. And then the first um, week of August, 
we will do the awe alternate worship experience in our small groups, and that will be focused on outreach as well. Instead of preaching a sermon today, which I kind of preached the only sermon I really had already, yes, last week. Uh, so if you want to listen to that, great. I think it'd be helpful. Uh, I thought we would just read through, um, I think, kind of my favorite story in Scripture, the one that most challenges me uh, about outreach, and that's going to be John 3 and John 4, if you want to turn there. And as we read, we'll let the Scripture just sort of talk And I'll add a few, I think, background points that might help bring out some of the ideas in this passage. And uh, John is such a wonderful book, and I would encourage those of you who are a little bit further along in this outreach thing, if you are meeting with someone or talking with someone who might be remotely interested in reading the Scripture for the first time with someone else, John is an excellent place to start for a variety of reasons. It's pretty accommodating, accessible. You can understand it. But it's really, really rich and meaningful because the whole point of John is that he does all of this light versus dark Greek kind of reasoning with people, comparing this versus that. And he spends a lot of time talking about how religion is worthless and how a relationship with God is the most valuable thing. And so he kind of constantly, there's this theme in John where all this religious spirituality stuff that we've done that sort of takes uh, you know, um, religion and places it in this kind of ethereal uh, you know, vague, non-physical, non-human environment is not going to work. That's not how God is, and that's not what he's interested in. So uh, we're going to read John 3 here in uh, verse 1. You guys ready? Ready to roll? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the same guy later on that will pay for Jesus' burial. Um, interesting that his name is used here, but it's, it's you know, he's kind of a, a more important person in the community, okay? A member of the Jewish ruling council, right? The Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night, at night, okay, and uh, said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. Now, notice how he knows he's from God, because he's doing miracles. This is interesting, okay? That's his proof. And uh, Jesus declared in his wonderfully non-related, like, where did that come from, out of left field way of speaking, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now just think about that for a moment. Come on. You go up, you compliment the guy. You're a pretty, like, well-to-do member in the community. Say, hey, man, I really enjoy your miracles. I think you've got a lot of good stuff to teach us. And then Jesus comes back with this, like, uh, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. God what is that? I mean, what is happening here? That is just a really strange reply. Uh, and as much as we can look back on it and you know, make some theological sense of it, come on, this is a pretty strange reply. So the Nicodemus, obviously like startled, befuddled, not understanding what's going on, asks what seems like one of the dumbest questions uh, a human can ask. Uh, how can he be born when he's old? Nicodemus said, surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. You read that, and if you don't really get the kind of, not humor, but just the weirdness of this conversation, like, what, is Nicodemus the weird one? Is Jesus the weird one? Like, what's happening here? Like, surely that can't happen. Like, yeah, you're right. Surely it can't, Okay. And if it did, it would be probably a, the, one of the weirdest B-movie horror, movie, uh, horror films you could ever see. Okay? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, 
Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, thanks, Jesus, for clarifying that whole weirdness with the being born again thing. Water, Spirit, these are all really important ideas in John. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I don't have time to get into some of this. Um, the whole conversation is just really interesting. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Now, who even knows what exactly he's asking, okay? Because how can this be could apply to just about anything Jesus just said. But we'll guess that the whole thing here is that a physical birth and a spiritual birth are different. And he's saying, what does that mean? Now, Jews would have understood spiritual birth, okay? You know, the whole idea with circumcision, some of these things, they would have understood that. So it's not really clear exactly what he's asking, other than probably his biggest question is about the spirit and how the spirit, you know, capital S, has a role in all of this stuff. Because the spirit uh, was a really tough idea for a lot of the, uh, the Jewish people. This sort of bringing the spirit into the flesh and combining the two was just a really, really strange idea. Not to mention for the Greeks, okay? So, how can this be? And then, ooh, oh boy, you were Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. You people, ooh. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? And he goes on, and this is where the for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, which some people love to just sort of pull out of that context of what he's saying. Uh, and uh, in verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Remember, he comes at night. John does this all the time. Remember, Nicodemus comes at night. Maybe to hide, maybe whatever, but the point of the story is that he's coming at night. Men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light, will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Okay? But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So you have the situation, Nicodemus, high ruling class, teacher of Israel, John saying, look, the state of affairs in the Jewish nation was such that even their leaders couldn't understand the basic theology of what Jesus was doing. And instead of wanting to get personal about their life and talk through things, they wanted to just argue theological concepts and principles and try to understand things that uh, you know, they didn't really understand without really getting personal. John very much is associating Nicodemus with dark, with not wanting his deeds to come into the light, not wanting to understand the things that Jesus is saying. And so you see this kind of challenging conversation where Jesus basically rejects Nicodemus' compliment, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Why is that important? Well, we could talk a lot about that on its own right, but if you don't read that story, before you read the Samaritan woman, you miss so much of what's going on here, okay? So our focus is gonna be on the Samaritan woman, but you gotta know the Nicodemus story before you read the Samaritan woman, otherwise so many things uh, you know, don't really kind of jive in this passage. All right, so in chapter four, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it wasn't Jesus who baptized but his disciples. There's a short little part in three here, just to back up a little bit, where John's own disciples are getting a little worried. They're like, hey, John, Jesus is kind of, you know, ratcheting it up. Uh, he's starting to kind of, his ministry's getting bigger. Remember what John's reply is? He's like, all right, let's start, you know, working on some programs to compete with that Jesus guy, because, man, he, he can't be baptizing more people than me. Now, what's John's response? 
It's a famous passage. Yeah, Jesus got to become greater. That's the whole purpose. I become less. He understood his role. He knew what was going on. He wasn't about his own ministry. He understood what Jesus' ministry was really about. It's about kingdom work. So when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. It was probably saving his life. Uh, John had already been taken up, gotten into trouble, maybe possibly even beheaded by this point. So Jesus was getting out of there. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now this is an interesting passage, okay? Because number one, he didn't have to go through Samaria. No one went through Samaria usually, at least for Jewish people, particularly religious Jewish people. It's the fastest way, sure, but it would have been much easier to go around to Shechem than Jerusalem and then get, just avoid the Samaritan area, okay? Uh, to give you a quick backstory, the Jews had completely burned down the temple in 128 BC in Samaria. Samaria was uh, the northern kingdom. If you think back to the Old uh, Testament, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom fought, hated each other. Northern kingdom went into exile first and the Assyrians, Babylonians for the southern kingdom. Anyway, they didn't get along. And in the exile... After the Assyrian exile, when the temple was going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, the Jews, the real Jews, intentionally snubbed the Samaritans by not letting them come and help rebuild the temple, even though they offered to. And then about 100 years later, they went and burned down their temple. Guys, no love lost here between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans had mixed with a whole lot of people. The Samaritans were just really sort of like fake or half Jews, okay? There's no real way to compare that today um, in terms of Christianity. The closest example would be Catholicism and, and maybe other Christians, Protestant Christians, but even that, even in the, the 17th, 18th century, doesn't come close to the kind of animosity between these two people groups. All right? So Jesus did not have to go to Samaria, but he went through there anyway. Obviously, he had an intention. Uh, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, Sure. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jo Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's daylight. It's noon. Huh. Noon. It's daylight. John makes that point. Why? Tells us that. Like, we're like, oh, sixth hour. Okay. Hmm. Uh, now, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone in town to buy food. All right, so a lot's made out of this encounter. Uh, honestly, women got water. That's it. That's just, that was one of their tasks, their roles. In fact, women loved to go get water at the well because that's where other women were, and that's one of the only places they could actually talk to other women, sort of like, uh, you know, I don't know, freely, okay? Without having to have a man around, without, you know, uh, particularly single men in this day would have never talked to a woman, ever, okay? Uh, ever in public, and particularly not a rabbi. I know this is such an, an interesting and weird, uh, you know, social cultural kind of environment, but you just have to take my word for it. You just didn't do that, okay? What's interesting is she's at the well by herself, because most women, when they went to the well, they would go together, make a trip of it, you know, kind of like the bathroom trip. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> she's alone, which is significant in and of itself, that she's alone. Now, when you forward, uh, fast forward uh, this story a little bit, you know, the whole idea that she's had five husbands and the sixth one she's with now is kind of, who knows, you know, it's kind of up in the air, maybe common law, maybe not. Um, she's probably shunned. Not probably, but she is. She's a marginalized woman, even in Samaria, which is kind of weird because Samaria is sort of a place where there's not very many rules and laws, at least from a Jewish perspective. So she's not just like a normal Samaritan woman. She's like a Samaritan that's shunned in her own society. Okay? 
It's like give you the weight of what's happening here with Jesus. He's not just talking to a single dignified Jewish woman. He is talking to a Samaritan woman, which in and of itself would have been bad news, but a woman who was not even dignified in her own culture and was a marginalized woman uh, at the well. Now, it's not like Jesus happened upon this well accidentally and thought, oh, there might be a woman there. Who knows? This is where you would go if you wanted to talk to women, all right? Look in the Old Testament, and when someone wants to get married, where do they go? They go to the well. That's kind of the cool place, you know? It's like the bar, you know? You go, and you get, get drinks, and, you know, sort of get to know the women. <laughs> all right? So that's the well. And this is Jacob Well. It's a very, very famous well in that area. Uh, and uh, so Jesus stops by Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? <laughs> like, the, the, the possible weight of this question would have been a huge deal. Like, opening his mouth, you can imagine she was just kind of like, uh, oh my gosh, what is happening right now? This is the strangest thing, okay? I don't really know how to compare it without making a sexual reference, the first thought in my mind was like a man going into a woman's bathroom and being like, hey, what's up? <laughs> it would have just been shocking, okay? Let's just say that, all right? Very, very, very shocking for this woman uh, to uh, hear from this man. Now, you can think probably her immediate thought is what? Not only am I not like this man's talking to me, I am not a good girl to talk to, <laughs> okay? What do, you th- what do you even laugh so much about that? Seriously, I'm not a good girl to talk to. I'm here alone by myself. There's no other women around. Um, If he only knew, if he only knew, this would be the last woman he'd be talking to at the well. It's probably our first thought in my mind uh, when he starts talking. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this sounds like a really like, Jesus like jumps right in to this like theological thing, right? Well, a couple things. First, uh, Jesus talking about living water just means moving water, okay? You gotta understand that in this area, in Samaria, there's no streams, there's no ponds. Moving water is always better. It's cold usually. Remember the whole uh, Revelation uh, uh, passage, you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and how that message was given to basically a city that was between a hot springs and a cold springs, and so their water was just sort of lukewarm, which what's the use of lukewarm water, right? How many of you, when you get water, you just order it with no ice? What is your problem? You have a problem, an, an issue that needs to be handled. And yes, I'm seeing a whole bunch of people being pointed to. Ice water versus lukewarm water, are you kidding me? That's not even an option. It's not even a question. Cold water, yes. Cold water can make even nasty water taste okay all of a sudden. All right? Even my water at my house with all those minerals. So, uh, she's thinking, wait a second. How does this guy know about a stream somewhere near here? Is he crazy? What's happening? But if he knows about a stream, I'm going to go get up on that stream, give me some good water. Okay, I'm already alone. Uh, I've got nothing to lose here. Um, it's interesting, too, just how much Jesus uses a need of his to, to interact with her and, and get this kind of conversation going. In a lot of our outreach and evangelism, we often think the opposite. We need to help someone in order to have a place to talk in their life. Jesus' ministry wasn't like that, at least not here in this case. He simply asked for something he needed, something very mundane and basic. Not, hey, I need some advice on my disciples. They're just constantly (laughs) 
messing up? And would you like, you know, maybe help me kind of with this interpersonal stuff? No, something very basic, something he needed, started a conversation with this woman. Now, again, of course, he chose to, to talk to someone who he already shouldn't have talked to, uh, uh, was in a place where he, he kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and this well's deep. They were usually about 100 feet, about as deep as they could go. Where can you get this living water? <laughs> Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Meaning, do you know something about this land that they haven't figured out in the last like 2,000 years? I'm pretty sure, sure I was raised and born here. I know more about this land than you do, you stupid idiot. All right? Uh, I think that's what it says somewhere there. It's NLT. Uh, <laughs> Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he transitions the conversation from a very earthly thing, a very needs-based to this sort of like spiritual um, mystery, okay? Something that, uh, that she's obviously very interested. Sir, give me that water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You gotta love, just, just break this apart. And maybe I'm crazy. I didn't spend like a ton of time studying this this week, so I'm not like obsessed with this or anything. But if you read this line by line, it's just so interesting. So now, just, let's just assume that you believe that there was somehow living water that didn't make you thirst. Remember, this is a day and age where there's a lot of mysterious, miraculous things going on. But she wants this living water. Why? Why does she want this water? Not to be thirsty, so she's got a practical concern for this living water. But what's the second thing it says? It's not have to come to this well. Now, this is an interesting one. It's her womanly duty to come to the well. Why wouldn't she want to go to the well? Well, yeah, there's this practical thing of, uh, okay, fine, you know, I can actually not have to be thirsty. I don't know if you would choose that. Would you guys choose to not be thirsty or hungry? Thirsties would be fine with me, but hungry? No, that, how is life without food? It doesn't work, right? That's why people talk about heaven not being any food in heaven. I'm like, get out of here. You're crazy, man. That's, no, that's not, that's not real. If anything, everything in heaven is going to be made of food, all right? <laughs> That's my heaven, and that's what I'm thinking and what I'm going for. All right? Amen. Yeah, that's right. Amen. Amen to that. Good food, not just like it's not a golden crow. You don't just go around and it's lukewarm. Uh, it's, we're talking good stuff, okay? If there is ever such a thing as a buffet, that's good food. And then, you know, now you know. It's, that's waiting for heaven. Uh, it's not possible here. So I don't have to come back to the well. And I think this is really interesting because, again, this has to do with her shame. And I don't think it's too much to read into this, having to go to the well by herself, meet random strange men, talking about living streams that don't exist, would have been a nice thing. And I think that's so true. When we talk to people about spiritual things, it, it, people don't naturally get the depth and meaning of, of what we're talking about. There's some practical need, practical concern that most of us are interested in. Think about the first time you became a Christian, whether that was meeting a friend, having purpose, uh, whatever, some practical need that we had that even opened us up to the gospel. And Nicodemus has this too at this point. Think back to him. He's got this practical need of how do you do these miracles? 
how are you, you know, this, this great leader? He's got the same kind of so questions and thoughts. And so far, their trajectories are basically on the same path, weird conversations, uh, just strange stuff going on. And there's nothing really too spiritual about it, but Jesus has used both, talking about birth in one place, water in another, to get them into a spiritual conversation. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Now, why? He gets to the point in the conversation where it's like, all right, we're talking a little bit too deep here. You probably should go get your husband. No, because he knows what's going on with her, right? Uh, I have no husband, she replied. Not, I've had five husbands, and I'm kind of like dating a guy and we're living together, but I have no husband. I'm a single woman. I mean, I'm a single woman. I'm a spinster. Uh, People... Uh, phrase their own, you know, uh, failures, their own issues. Again, Nicodemus, no different. She's not ready to get into anything real personal in her own life, okay? There's not been an option here. There's not been an ultimatum. There's not been a stopping point that says, hey, you've got sin in your life. You've got issues. Let's deal with them. It's interesting that Jesus never even gets there with Nicodemus. This never gets there. Nicodemus isn't even open enough to talk about his personal life and open up enough to talk about anything other than just spiritual ideas and theology and whatever else. But this is where this story turns and becomes a, an amazing story, okay? Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. She's like, oh, thanks. <laughs> Let's back that up. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Not judgmental. Just given details, given information. There's no judgment in that statement. If you read through it and you think through it, there's just nothing to assume that he's judging her. And it's interesting too because you can imagine at this point something changes and turns inside of her. Oh my gosh, I'm having this conversation with this man. He has known the whole time that I'm not who I say I am. The person I've been presenting myself, doing my best to kind of be noble, talking about my ancestors, Jacob, and all this spiritual stuff, he knows I'm not who I presented myself as. And that gives her an option. She can back up and say, what the, and boom, gone, done. Or she can continue on. And of course, this story is about a marginalized woman, even in her own society, being touched by Jesus, who at first treats her with dignity, but knowing all along she doesn't deserve it according to the society she's in. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Now, this is interesting. The Samaritans did not read the prophets. They cut them out of their scripture. Any reason why? Anyone want to guess as why the prophets probably weren't in the Samaritan scripture? None of you had read enough of the prophets. Well, most of the prophets were sent to the northern kingdom. And most of the prophets speaked about the Samaria, which was the capital of northern uh, uh, Israel, or, or the northern kingdom, as being the one that's going to fall first. And if you really compare southern kingdom versus northern kingdom, most of the prophets have negative things to say about the north and continue to, to assert that the Messiah, Jesus, will come from Jerusalem, not from the northern kingdom. So it's sort of one of those kind of convenient, selective, we'll do the Genesis through Deuteronomy, that sounds pretty good, but the prophets, man, they got way too many negative things to say about us. We'll probably just cut that out, 
create our own little worship center somewhere else. And this whole rift that's been happening so long uh, in, in Israel. So for her to call him a prophet is kind of like a, she's probably saying the word prophet and then realizing, wait a second, right? I don't, prophets are bad people. <laughs> Though we speak bad about us, this is not a good situation. And yet you can see she starts to kind of believe that she's speaking to someone a little bit more significant than just uh, a man at a well who apparently doesn't care about uh, you know, the whole rule of uh, people not talking to women. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. This is where their temple was that had been destroyed 100 years ago. But you Jews claim that that place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, again, testanim, the divide. So okay, fine, it's one thing for us to do this whole talk and interact, but religious-wise, you say your religion is here, I say my religion is there. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Guys, that statement is an amazing statement because what he's ultimately saying is, you say you've got to come here to be saved. I say I go there. Jesus says, you've missed the boat entirely. All of those locations and places and historical, racial, and ethnic divides will be completely trashed after my death, and everyone will have access to worship in spirit and in truth. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Breaks the divide down entirely in her mind. You've thought for this whole time, you're inferior, less than, you worship in a different place, Jesus come along and saying, worship has nothing to do with these locations and divides. You have just as much access to God as this ruling Jewish Sanhedrin council leader. And in fact, you already have shown more receptivity than he did. It's really, really interesting. And John is showing this to all of his readers saying, guys, look at this. You want to compare something, light versus dark, good versus evil? Look at this guy who spent his whole life studying about God, rising up through the ranks, who doesn't even understand the basics of spirit and flesh. And now we have a marginalized woman from a country that all of you could never assume anything good could come out of. Remember Jesus coming out of Nazareth was a bad thing? Well, that was still a Jewish city. It was just a low-down city. This is a marginalized Samaritan woman. And all of a sudden... Uh, you know, John saying, and that she receives this information. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And of course, the disciples come back and they're surprised. What is he doing talking to this woman? They're probably thinking, oh my gosh, we're following a pervert, uh, sex crazed dude. This is awful. What's happening? And then he goes into the whole Jesus juke about I've got food that you don't know anything about. But anyway, uh, as time goes on, what does the lady do? And people make a big deal out of her like dropping the jar as like some significant, you know, like dropping old religion, dropping all this. I mean, probably she was just pretty excited and dropped the jar and went back to her home. 
brought all these people in. You see in Acts, Philip evangelizing these people. And then all of a sudden, all the Samaritans now have the Holy Spirit that pours onto him, all coming from what we would assume is this one interaction with this woman who is the most unlikely candidate to bring the gospel to her people. And it's just an amazing story, and there's so much in it. And what's interesting, as I was reading through one of the commentaries this week, and I did read it quickly, is how she goes from Jesus, or how she goes from calling him Jesus, prophet, Messiah, okay, Christ, and then uh, probably one of my favorites uh, when we go here. Uh, let's see, uh, verse forty-two. After she tells them, uh, "Hey, he told me everything I ever did." It kind of seems like a lie, but <laughs> maybe there was other conversation. Who knows? Okay. They urged him to stay with them, stayed two days. And then in verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Guys, in one day's time, from Jesus, a man, a non-traditional man, to savior of the world. This phrase is used one time in all the New Testament right here. Because this is the first group outside of the Jews and the only group really that Jesus evangelizes because he was sent to the Jews. And this miraculous uh, uh, story brings about the whole idea that Jesus is the savior of all the world. And so I just would say, and my second point that I was gonna mention uh, last week that I didn't get to, since I don't have any notes, one of, I think, the hardest things in evangelism or outreach or whatever is we tend towards talking with people who are already somewhat like us. And if anything, this simply shows that whether people are like you or not isn't a good indicator of whether God is working in them. And to be able to talk to people who are different and uh, cross every boundary, social, whatever, racial, ethnic, and to understand that God does not play favorites. When he works in people's lives, he's been working and will work. Jesus, in this food story right after, remember, tells them, hey, this harvest is already ripe for you because someone else has been sowing the seeds. In this case, he was talking about John the Baptist. In our case, it's talking about the Spirit. The Spirit sows those seeds in people's lives, and we watch them grow as we water and we, we, we plant. And so this idea is just, a, I think, a very powerful image and a powerful idea of, uh, of what it looks like day-to-day and maybe less day-to-day and practical than sort of big picture, what it means to really be on board with outreach and, and discipleship. No conversation, how mundane, can't lead into talking about spiritual things. And yet at the same time, There's no need to force or push when people aren't ready or willing to hear the good news because Jesus didn't do it. And with Nicodemus, you would think he was primed and ready to go and that God will will totally surprise us in who and what options we have and what situations we're in where we actually get to talk about the gospel with people. I just think it's an amazing story and I think you should go back, revisit it, think about it. Uh, and try to apply some of the things maybe that I didn't get to uh, in your own life. We're going to take communion. And, uh, well, actually, you know what? Questions about that? I mean, that's, that's not really, wasn't really a sermon. It was just really a story, so I'm not so sure uh, there's going to be questions. But I always do just at least stop and uh, ask, particularly when at the beginning of a series. Anybody have any just thoughts or questions or concerns or comments? Yeah, Josh. 
Well, you know, remember last week what I talked about was uh, often uh, the good news is not good news for people because it changes their sort of um, uh, private worlds. It sort of turns it upside down. And I think uh, we tend to be much more comfortable um, talking with people who are very similar to us in the church simply because we feel like um, we've got to be able to understand them. We've got to be able to do the work. We've got to be able to kind of bring them to a place which is going to make sense for them. And that whole idea of evangelism where we're evangelizing people who are like home runs to us is tricky because those home runs often look more like Nicodemus than they do the Samaritan woman. They're people who come in because, yeah, they're associated with us, but we've never actually done much of gospeling to them at all. We've simply just sort of pulled them into our sphere of likeness and similarity and then just let them sort of stay because they look like us and act like us, and we've never really even presented the gospel to them necessarily. But I think what uh, this story tells us and maybe helps us see is that, number one, uh, outreach has nothing to do with bringing people to the church here. It has very little to do. Guys, our church is not a great place for a lot of people. When we were in the middle of the MLK neighborhood and we were like door knocking and stuff, one of my like kind of concerns was that people from the community would come to our church because I'm thinking they would come and they'd just be like, what is this thing? <laughs> uh, we're not at all, uh, as many of you know, like black Protestant churches. I mean, y'all, y'all are like the opposite. We're like the opposite. We just, just kind of stand still and don't move. Uh, many of us are somewhat affluent, and in that area it's not. And we did. We'd have a couple people who would visit church time to time, and I'd just kind of look at them and be like, they are so uncomfortable here. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? No one's got to figure out, they got to be in our church and do what we're doing, which is very different and unique, and I would say very specific and narrow, to ever be, uh, to have you know, the gospel ever proclaimed to them. That's not the purpose. That's not the point. That's home run hits, but when it comes to talking to people who are at our jobs or, uh, you know, as we come across them, whether they're teenagers or adults, whatever, we look for opportunities to take the most mundane things, uh, whether that's people helping us, us helping them, and just proclaim the gospel. Uh, and that's proclaiming the gospel. I mean, again, I think we get this word, we think, well, we've got to say something really specific. So much of it is just about asking questions and opening it up. I was talking about it yesterday with one of the bartenders at Alamo Draft House. And um, so he's a PhD student here at UNT, does English literature, and I love the book It. It's really freaking weird, but I like it. It's pretty great. I'm almost halfway done now, and, uh, you know, he just kind of saw me reading it, and he said, dude, do you like that book? And I'm like, yeah, what do you mean? And I'm thinking he's going to talk about the whole weird scene at the end when the kids are doing some weird stuff. Um, But he's like, I don't know, man. Friendship beats the devil? (laughs) It just sounds so lame. And, uh, and man, it was great because it led into an awesome conversation about the power of friendship. And we just talked about it. And he, he kept signing throughout. He's like, dude, I have friends. I have friends. I'm like, I'm not telling you you don't have friends, man. I, I'm just trying to tell you that in my mind, and I, I, uh, you know, the whole idea of Jesus being a friend uh, uh, to his disciples, the friend of his followers, the whole idea that friendship, in my mind, is the most powerful force of love in our society. And so many of us think about friendship in really, really shallow terms. Anyway, it just led to a decent conversation about friendship and about why it was so problematic for him to think about friendship. And the biggest problem was because he had a very American worldview on friendship, which is friends are like buddies and not like friends. 
and it in all of its weirdness and strangeness, and I am not at all recommending you read that pornographic book, okay? But I loved the synopsis of it, you know? Friendship beats the devil. Uh, and, um, you know, anyway, I just said that, that, so to answer your question in like basically another 10-minute sermon, um, I, yes, think the church does it absolutely because we're more comfortable with it. We're simply more comfortable with it. But you guys know what makes our church even so great and wonderful is the diversity in it. And I'm not talking about racial diversity alone or gender or social class. I'm talking about people who truly come from different backgrounds. A variety of denominations, Christian, non-Christian, a variety of backgrounds. Most of us don't even tip the iceberg. We don't even understand. I get the perspective. Leslie gets the perspective of knowing just how different all of us are. And in a group like this, we tend to try to pretend like we're all pretty similar. And yet, the more you get to know people, the more you really know the rich diversity that we have in our backgrounds of faith, not in faith, those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it's just questions and, uh, and kind of getting, just trying your best to have conversations. I got a guy named Gordon. Um, I think I was with Grant the other day. Uh, he just moved here from San Francisco. And uh, man, he just loves to talk about the Bay Area, number one. I'm like, whatever. Talk to my wife. She likes that area. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, welding quite a bit, but he's super interested in learning about food places here because he moved down here with his son. Son's in Crossroads. He always comes up here and he wants to know where the food places are. And so I've, I've eaten with him a couple times now. And just, I mean, dude's like, I don't know how old he is, man, but I'm just going to say, that's probably not the nicest thing to say, so I'm not going to say that. Let's say he's, he's old, okay? All right. Uh, just have conversations. I was going to say he's on his last leg. That's really a bad way to put that, right? Oh, yeah. Some of you were like, oh, yeah, that's... Listen, man, if you knew Gordon, you'd be totally cool with that. And he'd be laughing right now uh, at the fact that I've talked to him. Because we have talked a lot about death and things that I've never thought about. Why talk about those things, man? I am interested in that. I'm not close to that. Some of you are still like pretty mad at me. They're staying on the last leg. You know, me speak about animals like that, but not about humans. Okay, just erase that one. Uh, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, uh, you know, one of the first things um, that, uh, that's challenging is most people are pretty uh, passive when it comes to talking about difficult stuff. So if you open it up first and you're able to share and willing to talk about that stuff, and then just sometimes language. Some of us think that the gospel is about like being really prim and proper and like, and I'm not saying use customers in the gospel. I did say it last week, but this week I won't say it. Uh, I'll just let you reference that. But just being able to be not crass, but wise in how you talk to people. Uh, some of us, our idea of like, we're going to good people into conversations about these things. Like you can't be honest about stuff. You can't be I don't know how best to, to put that, but see, remember, most of the people I hang around with, uh, those are a pretty rough crowd, all right? I'm just going to say that. They're a really rough crowd. I like to pretend like I'm rough by hanging out with them. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, one last one, because everyone like, is getting kind of fidgety. And, guys, we don't have any songs after this. It's communion, okay? Just relax. <laughs> I was just kidding. Uh, so, you know, Anytime you read through scripture, right, you're going to get like a, uh, what John decides is important to talk. But there's no way that was like a, like Jesus is like the perfect, you know, like segment into each one of those like next steps. Now, John's just recording that. I'm sure they had a ton of conversations. And uh, what's really interesting about this, right, is, and I forgot to mention this, Nicodemus wants a miracle from him. To Nicodemus, the miracle is proof that he's Jesus. What does Jesus give him? Nada, miracles. She didn't ask for a miracle. He gave her one to prove himself. 
And I think this is really interesting, right? And the whole idea of the miracle as being a proof has to go beyond just the sort of miracle itself, but Jesus did that a lot with people. He didn't coerce people into believing in him. He wanted them first to see him as genuine, as human, as loving and caring, and then if they needed sort of extra proof to maybe share to other people, he would do the miracles and stuff. And I think this is really, really any kind of an important idea. But so I'm sure he told her all kinds of stuff. I doubt it was like, okay, tell me what I did then. Guess how old will I be at this point? Like, it's not like, a, it's not like testing a savant or something, you know, it was probably, uh, you know, pretty interesting. Um, so no, no, I was totally kidding. I didn't mean to, John was like, yeah, everything, yeah, yeah. Uh, I should stop saying that. Tabby, Chelsea, quit looking at me like I'm gone way too long. No, this is not bizarre. You're bizarre. We just celebrated our fifth year anniversary Thursday, you know? Just... We fought and had pretzels. Am I right? Oh. It's close enough, guys. All right. So, that's a good transition uh, into the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. So, uh, we're going to take communion. And uh, we do communion here in a little bit of a raucous way. Uh, so we're loud and we celebrate. We say that a lot. Just don't want you guys to lose the meaning. Uh, the goal is not to be loud and celebrate. Or it is to celebrate, but it's not to be loud. Um, uh, our goal in taking communion is always um, to honor what Jesus has done for us and to celebrate. And we spend a lot of time on the negative aspect of cross and putting our sins, you know, nailing them to the cross. And that's totally great. Um, but just as important as the idea of celebrating and living each day, um, as the article will say this next week that you'll read, praising God for what he's done and letting the things that we talk to other people flow out of not some weird in the middle of, oh, I haven't thought about God for two days. Let me have a decent God conversation, but something that actually flows out of what we're thinking each day and talking about. And, uh, and I think that's important too when it comes to outreach stuff. So I'm gonna say a prayer and then uh, we'll end this bizarre time as Chelsea said. Um, Lord God, you're great, and we thank you for uh, just working in people's lives. I mean, it, just the whole thing uh, about religion being something we do and we pursue, and uh, only people who can help themselves uh, find you, the fact that you turn all that on its head, that you are patient and that you are working in the lives of so many people, we just help us believe that. So I think that's the hardest thing uh, for me a lot of times is talking to someone, thinking about them, seeing their life um, more or less figured out, trying to figure out uh, how the gospel fits into those things, how it's good news. Um, it's just hard. It's hard for me. And yet, um, the examples are all around us. In our lives, we're our own examples of you working and working in miraculous ways in people's lives. Help us to just be more interested in spiritual things and telling people about you and talking about you and figuring out how your spirit is working. Not in any way holier than thou way, but just to stop being so obsessed with what we can see and touch and feel and, and, uh, and see the things that we can't. We celebrate you, Jesus, as uh, uh, our Lord, uh, Savior of the world, and uh, we love you. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.